why don't we get started? And um, as people come in um, late, then we'll just allow them to do so. Uh, again, my name is Johnny Lin, and I'm a professor of physics at Northwest University of Chicago. So I'd like to welcome you to the afternoon continuation of our session on climate change and environmental policy. Our first speaker for today will be Jim Ball, and he is the Executive Vice President of Policy at EEN, and will be presenting on climate and energy policy today and how Christians can be sustained for the long haul. So, thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. Well, it's great to be here. Can everybody hear me all right? Terrific. Um, so let's just, uh, I'm going to try to work through my slides so that we can have uh, a decent amount of time for Q&A. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, to set the stage here, uh, the climate mitigation clock is ticking. Uh, the amount of time that we're going to have to solve this problem is, is ticking away on us. Uh, our goal here is to keep uh, the, uh, the temperature rise below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, or 450 parts per million in the atmosphere and declining after that. This, uh, this goal has been articulated for a couple of years in the scientific community, and uh, last summer was affirmed by the G8, and then in December was agreed to at the Copenhagen uh, talks and is in the Copenhagen Accord as the scientific uh, goal uh, for that effort. So in order to do that, uh, anthropogenic CO2 and other greenhouse gases have to peak between 2015 and 2020, according to the IPCC and the World Bank. So we really need to get moving here quickly. Uh, the International Energy Agency has said that uh, after 2010, each year of delay adds $500 billion uh, to the worldwide cost. And a delay of a couple of years would put our goal completely out of reach. So is this still possible? Can we still do this? Do we still have time to do it? Yes, we can, to borrow a phrase. Uh, but... What we need is a carbon uh, revolution, uh, as described by the McKinsey Institute. We need a tenfold increase in carbon productivity. Now, has this ever happened before? We've never been able to do something comparable in the, in the, uh, before. In the past, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, we had a comparable achievement, a tenfold increase in labor productivity. But we've got to achieve this revolution in 40 years, or one-third the time, increasing our carbon productivity by 5.6% a year. So if we're to think of this as a race, what type of race are we running? Overcoming global warming, in other words, achieving our goal of not going above two, two degrees Celsius pre-industrial is a spiritual and moral marathon. It's going to take us 40 years, but we have to get started right away. Are we on track in the U.S.? No. That's a big no. What do we need to do? 
We need to put a price on carbon strong enough to shift investment decisions in the economy. We need, a, need for that purpose, we need a market-based uh, mechanism such as cap and trade. And then we need funding for adaptation for the warming that is, is already happening and will continue to happen. So what's the pricing carbon outlook? Well, this Congress, a golden opportunity lost. Uh, the, the, the bill was just, uh, the majority leader just decided that he was not going to bring the bill up for a vote. <clears throat> EPA, however, is set to regulate CO2 starting in January. In the upcoming election in November, given that the Republican leadership is opposed if they take either chamber, we're done for the next Congress, and we'll be looking to 2013. Well, if you recall, when do we start to need to peak 2015? So if, we look, if, we're, if we're thinking 2013, uh, we're no longer, uh, we no longer have gone to our internist and said, what do I need to cure myself? And he starts giving us medicine. That'd be today. In 2013, no, we've waited, we've diddled, and we're in the emergency room. It's a lot more expensive, and we need a crash course. If the Democrats retain both chambers, we've got a chance for a weaker bill. But since they had their golden opportunity in this Congress, uh, not incredibly, uh, not a great track record. But... Uh, EPA regulations and some other, a little bit from the DOE can actually, if we do it aggressively, this is, this is uh, authority they already have under existing law. They can reduce CO2 12% below 2005 levels by 2020. And then with state actions that have been announced, um, and what that means is that, well, they've been announced, some of them have been enacted by legislatures, others uh, just an executive order. They need to still get the funding, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of ifs here. But if you were able to, uh, you know, do all of the actions that have been announced, another 2% reduction. If we compare this to the bill that passed the House uh, last year, uh, the Waxman-Markey bill, uh, by 2020, they had 17% below uh, 2005 levels. But they also had, there was, there's much more certainty in that law in terms of af after 2020. With regulation, it's less certain in terms of what we'll be able to achieve after 2020. So to recap, CO2 must peak between 2015 and 2020. We need a tenfold increase in carbon productivity. Need a price on uh, carbon, but Congress has failed to act thus far. Uh, absent the legislation, uh, regulation can get us started, but uh, provides no funding for adaptation and other uh, necessary things. And what we're on, the race we're on, is a spiritual and moral marathon. Now, the thing is, is that we haven't yet even started the race. That's an important thing to understand. Pricing carbon is simply the start of the race. 
And we haven't even done that yet. So what we've been doing all this time, metaphorically, is some of us anyway have been getting into training. We've been training. <laughs> but we haven't even started the race. And we really need to get going. But then we still have to run the race. Millions of climate-friendly decisions need to be, by billions of people, need to be made through this century. And we also must help the poor adapt. So to run and finish the race will require spiritual resources to provide us the necessary stamina and motivation. Remember, we're talking about 40 years and essentially really the rest of our lives because we will have to continue uh, to reduce emissions after we uh, peak at uh, 440, 450 parts per million, or 2 degrees C above pre-industrial. How? How are we going to do this? Where are we going to get these spiritual resources? How will we be sustained as we train and run and finish the race? Well, it's not ultimately by the S-U-N, it's ultimately by the S-O-N. Um, a lot of what I'm going to uh, talk about now, and as a matter of fact, uh, most of what I've already talked about, uh, but a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is from my upcoming book, Global Warming and the Risen Lord, that will be out this fall. So how is global warming going to be overcome? It is the risen Lord who is leading the way in this great cause of freedom. He is calling each and one of us to play our particular part. And to fully walk with him today is to follow and join him in overcoming global warming. He's leading the way. We will do it through him. Overcoming global warming flows together with Christ's creating and sustaining activities. By reflecting the true Imago Dei, Christ, we become more free, beautiful, and glorious. That is what an Imago Dei is. By our Savior's blood, we are set free to do his will. That's what an Imago Dei does again. Do his will the Father's will. His grace is the spiritual power we need to overcome global warming in this marathon that we are on. But just like the apostles, we will fail him at times. Well, it was the risen Lord's presence that allowed them to confess, my Lord and my God, and to follow him and thereby experience life in his name. We need to understand that the risen Lord is present to us now and is with us as we run this marathon. So following the risen Lord and overcoming global warming will involve all of the five great loves. Through the spiritual power of the risen Lord's grace and presence, we can love each other, as he has loved us, love our neighbors as ourselves, love our enemies by overcoming evil with good, love the least of these as Christ himself, and love God back 
which infuses all of these loves. Overcoming global warming is ultimately about love and grace and faithfulness and freedom and spiritual beauty and glory. So, how are we going to do the Q&A, Johnny? Should I just take questions from the audience? Who uh, has a question about any of, any of what, uh, well, frankly, anything about climate policy and, and stuff going on? Yes, sir. It's interesting. Christians are a small minority. Uh, a lot of folks think that we're a Christian country uh, because uh, in, in terms of uh, our sheer numbers, at least in terms of those who self-identify. Um, well, in terms of, uh, let's just take the evangelical Christian community. Uh, the National Association of Evangelicals reaches out to over 30 million Christians. Uh, that's a lot of folks who could really be making a big difference. Well, I'm not saying that within that community, but if you've if you got a 30% response in favor of this within that community, that would be uh, overwhelming in a way. And it doesn't it touch other communities at all, unless we're very vigorous in evangelizing. Right. And, the, you know, the... the I guess one of uh, the ironies of this, and maybe kind of a um, one of the ways that God's been working mysteriously here, is that uh, the folks who've been leading the charge on this are not from our community. Uh, they are many of them don't have any faith. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, more liberal Christians who are leading the charge. Uh, others from other faith traditions. Um, the polling on this shows again and again and again that over half the country is in favor uh, of, of the type of legislation that wasn't brought up for a vote. Uh, now, what we need is for the intensity level of the support to go up because right now the politicians are just simply not feeling enough heat, uh, political heat, uh, in this sense. All right, next uh, question. Yes, sir. So um, I guess, first of all, I feel like the ones who are doing the best on this are in Europe, which probably doesn't have a very strong evangelical presence, although at some level it has a strong Christian presence. I also want to say that the biggest issue is not the U.S. The biggest issue is the rise in developing economies in China and India. Um, and, you know, this presentation is nice, but it really doesn't address the global problem of global warming. And I want to ask you how you're doing. You know, if you have, if you're trying, you can just say, you know, I'm not trying to do anything with the whole global issue just within the U.S. That's fair enough. But whether if you thought about that and what you would do about it. Yeah. Well, um, oh, yes. Um, the question is set. Uh, he brought up the fact that uh, in this century, not looking historically, historically we've been the world's number one emitter and, and the developed countries have created the emissions platform upon which we're building now. Uh, and so 
But in, the, in this century, he's bringing up uh, that it's the emerging economies, uh, uh, China especially, who a couple of years ago surpassed the United States as the world's number one emitter. Uh, and it's these emerging co economies that will definitely be creating the bulk of the pollution in this century. Shouldn't we be kind of engaging them and, and working with them? Um, that's definitely the case. The way that um, strategically, in terms of what we can do, the leverage power that we have, right, that is primarily, for those of us here in the United States, with, with ourselves, our own community, and our elected officials. Uh, the United States, it's still, frankly, uh, this uh, problem, the, the two countries who are the biggest emitters are also the two that really have to step up to the plate and provide the leadership. And that's the United States and China. They are, in some ways, right now, indispensable. But frankly, if the U.S. keeps dithering, uh, China is, is going to grab this uh, clean energy market uh, and they, they're going to, you know, they're going to do things that are, they feel are in their best interests, and they're starting to understand and realize that tackling climate change and, more importantly for them probably, clean energy, uh, that this is a thing that they should be doing. So it could be the case that the world will kind of muddle along without the United States, but that's really an optimistic kind of view of, like, our failure. <laughs> Uh, I think a realistic view is that without the United States, the world probably won't solve this problem. And so um, that's especially the case in terms of an international deal that needs to happen. The only way an international deal is really going to happen, it, it was demonstrated in, in, in living color <laughs> at Copenhagen, is for countries to go back and create domestic uh, programs that are ratified and and legalized in whatever way that happens in each individual country. And then countries can come back together and put together a deal. That is key um, for us as Christians for one key reason, because the funding for helping the poor in poor countries to adapt to the consequences of climate change, most of that funding will be figured out at, at this international level, at these international talks. If we don't have success at the domestic level, we won't be able to cut that final international deal, and that's essential. Yes, sir. I really appreciate what was expressed earlier in an earlier climate session just a few hours ago, that it is the spiritual consequences that we who are affluent will, will uh, have, will, will experience of not following but that the physical consequences will go to the poorest, yes. both around the world as well as even in our own country. Yes. But I think that there are, are more long-term or broader issues uh, in the sense of, although I think I, uh, that, that uh, we want to not impact the atmosphere any more than we, uh, we can keep from doing so, Population, uh, clean water, uh, actually commodities of all kinds, all kinds of metals, are beginning to limit even the production of the high-quality, high-strength plastics that go.
go into the, uh, our, our carbon uh, materials that go into the uh, windmill. And so I, I think there, there, there needs to be a balance between those issues. I think leadership, both spiritually and politically, is important. But I think that population, I think, is, is even more important. Right. I'll, um, the point being made was, uh, the main point being made was um, that uh, there are other issues uh, broader uh, than climate, uh, although the climate is pretty broad, <laughs> but, um, but other issues in terms of um, population, uh, the growth, I assume, you're concerned about. Um, of course, uh, there's, two, there's two sides to that population coin, right? Um, one is the consumption side on the developed countries part, right? That we're consuming way more, uh, right? We're worth 80 Bangladeshis in terms of uh, climate impact. Uh, so there's that consumption side, and then there's the sheer numbers side, right? Um, and that's true. Um, the, the great, you know, the, the helpful thing about the, the population issue is that even though there are all kinds of uh, kind of uh, uh, other moral issues connected, right, to the population issue, right, that make it a really touchy subject for people, um, we can all, the, the things that are the best ways to go about reducing population in, in developing countries, educate girls, you know, make sure, uh, health care, make sure that, that kids survive, People have lots of kids. It's basic, the children are basically their social security. And so you tackle these things we already want to do as Christians, and you, you pretty much solve that problem. Uh, clean air, well, you solve, and clean water, you solve, you solve climate, you're solving those things as well. So there are all kinds of connections here. I think if we start to uh, find ways to use energy more efficiently and reduce our consumption, and be good stewards, uh, we, the, our country can start to be what we should be, the, you know, one of the leaders of the world. Uh, Johnny, how are we doing on time? Four minutes. So a couple more questions. Yes, sir. Right. I guess what I'm wondering is you know, how do you, you know, since this, this, this group here is sort of in a position to maybe try to figure out how to address that, that population and, uh, that may have more benefit in terms of sort of bringing the country along than anything. Right. Yes. So the issue brought up, you'll be next, sir. The issue brought up uh, is that there are a lot of folks in the evangelical community who uh, my, my, my presentation seems to assume that people think this is a real issue that they should be concerned about. Uh, and there are, a lot, there are folks in the evangelical community who don't believe that yet. What do we do about those folks? Um, uh, we, we're at a point now where because Congress has now failed, 
the Obama administration has failed. Um, we need to start finding and energizing and motivating and arousing the folks who are ready to take action uh, and help those in our community and other communities understand uh, that this is, uh, you know, for us in our community, this is a Christian calling. Um, and so we're going to be reaching out to those who will listen to us. Uh, and what we need in the next couple of years is committed, you know, folks who are committed to this issue, who will really stay engaged and involved. Uh, so I'm, we're going, there are others, uh, a good book on kind of convincing the skeptics uh, in the evangelical world is by Catherine Hayhoe, A Time for Change, and I would recommend that book to you. We're going to be trying to engage those folks who are ready to listen to us, and many younger evangelicals are. I mean, the, we are basically, we have tried to reach out for about four years now to the, what folks might term the religious right. It hasn't worked, and God bless them, we're moving forward without them. One final, uh, sir, one final question. That's right. And the Republican Party is saying no. You said that Congress passed a bill. They didn't pass a, a, a law. A law. The House of Representatives passed a bill that's not going to become law. It's right. now a dead issue. And after this election, it may be dead for 10 years. Uh, we need to start using language to maybe communicate how drastic the situation is. So I suggest that we use planet heating or something like that. Because global warming doesn't <laughs> I like global warming. I don't like the cold. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. No, I get that from my uncle. <laughs> um, so. Right, right. I appreciate that. Um, and we're 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 agreeing with you. I mean, we'll probably stick with global warming, although that that term itself is actually a bit edgy for most evangelicals. 